It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. I'm environment reporter Madeleine Cuff. This is the show where we feature science-adjacent and science-influenced stuff in the world of culture. On this episode, we meet the moral philosopher Peter Singer. In 1975, Singer published the book Animal Liberation, which argued in favour of veganism and has been credited with kickstarting the modern animal rights movement. Almost 50 years later, he's back with an updated version of the book. It re-examines the ethics of how we treat animals in the modern world, particularly as the science around climate change has solidified. I sat down with Singer this week to ask how the argument for eating animals has changed and what it means to live and eat ethically in today's world. I've spent the last few weeks reading the updated edition of Animal Liberation now and found it really fascinating. I've got lots of questions to get through. First off, why did you feel the need to update the book? And as part of that, why did you change the title from Animal Liberation to Animal Liberation Now? Well, I think a lot had changed since the last revision of the book. It was published in 1975 originally. I did a reasonably thorough revision in 1990, but I haven't touched the body of the text since then. The later so-called new editions had a new preface or an afterword, but if you looked at the chapter on factory farming, it was all describing conditions in the 1980s or earlier. The same is true about the chapter on the use of animals in research. The experiments described are from the 1980s or earlier. So I thought that people reading this book will no longer feel it's relevant to the situation that we're in. They will want to know, are we still doing these things to animals? Has it got better? Has it got worse? What progress has been made by the animal movement over the last nearly 50 years since animal liberation first appeared? So I wanted to put in something about that. Climate change is obviously a big issue now, and it is relevant to what we ought to eat. And finally, I wanted to make the book more global because it's no longer, in in terms both of factory farming and the use of animals for research, it's no longer just Western countries that are dominating this. Uh, China is now the biggest producer of, of pig products and overwhelmingly from factory farms. And they're also now a very big player in research. So I wanted to talk about what's happening in China and, and in India and other countries to some extent as well. But uh, particularly the rise of China has been very significant for any kind of assessment of whether animals are better off or worse off now than they were when I wrote the first edition. For our readers and listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your arguments around 
how we treat animals and whether we eat them or not. Could you just summarise where you stand on this issue and whether your thinking has changed substantially since the book was first published in 1975? I think the core arguments that I made in 1975 have stood up very well to the test of time and to uh, being examined and scrutinized and sometimes criticized by other philosophers. That's what philosophers do. We look at what each other writes and see whether we can say that's not right and we can say something that is right. And and yet the arguments that I put up, though they were quite radical at the time and, and some thought a little bit crazy, have gathered significantly more support now from a, a wide range of philosophers, including philosophers from different ethical perspectives than mine. Uh, and, and what they're supporting is the view that we are not justified in thinking of animals as beings who lack moral status uh, and whom we don't have obligations to. And the boundary of species, which we use to determine which beings have rights, which beings have some entitlement to equal moral status, that boundary is not the right place to draw those lines. That other sentient beings, those who can feel pain or pleasure, have a right to have their interests considered. And I argued, in fact, that we should give equal weight to similar amounts of pain and pleasure, irrespective of species. So although it may be true that humans have different kinds of interest than non-human animals do, if we're talking about common interests, like the interest in not feeling pain, it's just as bad if pain is inflicted on a human or a dog or a pig, any animal capable of feeling pain. So that was the, the core argument, and I, I used the term speciesism, which I didn't invent, I owe to Richard Ryder, but I popularized, to suggest that what we're guilty of is a kind of a prejudice against taking seriously the interests of beings of other species, just as other isms that we're more familiar with, racism and sexism, for example. In those cases too, the dominant race or the dominant sex developed an ideology that justified the use and often abuse of those who were not part of the privileged group, whether it was whites or males. So I'm trying to make the parallel here that there's something that I'm not saying the phenomena are the same. I'm not saying the kinds of suffering are the same, but there's a similar phenomenon of a dominant in-group developing an ideology to justify exploiting those outside that group. And how would you say, if at all, your thinking on this issue has evolved since 1975? Well, it's evolved in some ways. Since 1975, I've become a little more open to the idea that if we rear animals in ways that give them good lives and take care to make sure that they do not suffer when they're killed, so they have no anticipation of it and it's instantaneous, that's a defensible ethical position. In the first edition, I rejected that, but I thought about the whole issue more. It, it relates to some quite difficult philosophical questions about bringing new beings into existence and giving them good lives, whether that's a plus or whether once they come into existence, you can't justify ending their lives, even, even if 
it's the case that if you didn't end their lives, there would be no more beings after that because obviously a farmer is not going to rear animals and wait for them to die a natural death before trying to sell their bodies. So I'm, I'm a little more open to that idea. It's still not my view, but I now see some of the difficulties in rejecting it. And I regard that as a kind of unsolved philosophical problem that goes back to some of the work of Derek Parfit, the, the Oxford philosopher who, who died five or six years ago. A lot of very smart philosophers have tried to solve that problem. I've tried to solve it. I wasn't happy with my own solution. So that's why I still regard it as a, a kind of an open question. So it may be that not all killing of animals for food is wrong, depending on how you go about the rearing and care for those animals during their life. That's possible. I'm, I'm not saying that I accept that, but I, I'm saying that that's a defensible position that I think people who are conscientious about that, in fact, the phrase sometimes used to describe it is conscientious omnivores. So I think people who are really conscientious about ensuring that any meat that they buy comes from animals who've had good lives have a position that I'm not prepared to say flatly is immoral or, or wrong. One of the elements that's new in this edition is the discussion around climate change and the climate context around eating meat and dairy products. I just wonder what you think about how much that should be a factor in driving people to make a dietary change because eating ethically to maximise animal welfare issues versus eating ethically to minimise climate change, they're not always the same thing. So I just wonder how you square that circle and whether you see any kind of climate issues around dietary patterns in conflict with animal welfare discussions. Yes, I think what you said is absolutely correct. And they are in conflict. Because if you were to follow what I was just saying about animals who have good lives, maybe killed without suffering, you might say that the best meat to eat is beef, because it's possible to get beef from animals who have lived all of their lives on, on grass, on pasture. They didn't go to feedlots to be fed grain. And generally, I would say that quality of life is, is okay. But the greenhouse gas emissions are very high from ruminant animals because it's part of their digestive process that they digest methane, which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. And by comparison, chickens don't produce methane, so there's much less of a climate change implication in eating chicken. But most chicken is factory farmed. It's a tiny percentage of chicken which is free-range produced now, and it's a lot more expensive. So if people simply switch from beef to chicken for climate reasons, okay, they are reducing their greenhouse gas footprint, but they're causing a lot more suffering to animals because those chickens will have been factory farmed in almost all cases. They will have been bred to grow extremely fast, which causes suffering because of leg deformities that it produces. They, they put on weight so fast their legs can't really bear their young but extremely heavy bodies. And of course, to feed yourself, you have to be responsible for a lot more chickens going through factory farms than you are for, for cows. So it's really significantly worse from an animal welfare point of view, but better from a climate point of view. I think it's better to avoid both of them and to have a plant-based diet. Then you don't have to worry about inflicting harm on animals from a welfare point of view, and your greenhouse gas footprint will be much lower anyway. 
you'll know that the popularity of vegetarian and vegan diets has has grown pretty substantially in particularly in western countries over the last few years and even kind of the idea of flexitarianism where people abstain from meat and dairy products for the majority of their meals is growing in in normality i guess what do you think your book has to offer if the trend lines are going in the right direction anyway particularly among younger consumers who are more likely to have shifted their dietary patterns already I hope the effect of my book is to reinforce that trend that you mentioned and to uh, provide those younger people with ethical arguments, an outlook that confirms what they have done for whatever reason they've done, and I hope means that it's more likely that they will stay with it throughout their lives and that others join that. Because I do think, although it's true that the number of vegans and vegetarians has grown a lot, it's still not the mainstream. I mean, I think in the United Kingdom, I read there's 1.3 million vegans. Well, that's a fantastic increase compared with, you know, when I wrote Animal Liberation, when I, I doubt that there was, uh, you know, much, much more than a thousand. I know there was a, a British, uh, there was a UK vegan society, which is still there. But I, I looked at the history of it. And I think they had only had about a thousand members right into the 1980s. So it's a tremendous increase, but still, it's a small percentage of Britons as a whole. This needs to become more mainstream. If a lot of people become the kind of flexitarians that you described, and they're only eating meat, let's say, on two days a week, fantastic. That will have a big impact too. But we really need to get away from the idea that the majority of people are going to eat meat every day, sometimes twice a day. I think that's something that is. Uh, we can't sustain from the for the planet in terms of climate change and is responsible for the suffering of millions of animals in, in factory farms. Do you believe that you'll be able to convince enough people to make the change on, on moral or ethical grounds? Or is there a role for the state in whatever country to play? And and what are the what are the lines there about how much politicians should get involved in the kind of day-to-day choices of people's lives. It would be wonderful if I can make the case on ethical grounds and persuade the majority of people to follow that, but I'm a little doubtful that I can. I haven't completely given up hope, but it's true that that growth that we just talked about over the nearly 50 years since the first edition is, is not really enough. So I would encourage governments to get involved just as they're getting involved, say, in general on climate change issues, governments, I think, in many countries are subsidizing people who install uh, solar panels on their roof to generate clean electricity and a range of other kinds of activities like that. So I think we each should be part of that. And I think it would be perfectly reasonable for governments to impose taxes on um beef and lamb and dairy, the products that are doing most damage to the climate. Uh, because really, you know, I think any, any economist would acknowledge that it's a failure of the market that the price people pay for those products does not include the harm done to third parties. It's what economists call negative externalities. There's an external factor that is not priced into the price of the product, and that is the harm that it's doing. 
And it's doing that harm to a lot of people, and particularly it's doing that harm to some of the poorest people in the world who have the lowest greenhouse gas footprints, but also the least ability to overcome the problems of climate change. That's just wrong, and and governments should recognize that that's wrong and should add to the price of these products so that firstly, people buy less of them, and secondly, there's more revenue that can go uh, to help people in those countries who are in need of assistance. Do you see a future in which eating meat and dairy will become kind of morally unacceptable in the same way that we've seen homophobia or slavery or those kind of other social issues become socially unacceptable? And what kind of time frame would you put on that? Are we talking 500 years time, 1000 years time? Do you kind of see humanity getting to that point eventually? I do think that the long term development of ethics and morality is to be more inclusive and to expand the circle of moral concern. And so I think that that will, in the long run, lead to the inclusion of non-human animals in an ethical framework that means that we cannot treat them as we are now treating them. And of course, there's, as we've been saying, there's the climate issue, which is really quite urgent. So I do think that this is possible, but it's very hard for me to put a time frame on it. It's a really big change. And if you look at, you mentioned slavery as an example, well, the slave trade was abolished, the horrible transatlantic slave trade, but it still lingered on for another 50-something years in the United States and was only stopped by a brutal civil war. So it's hard to say, really, how easy it will be for the, the moral cause in terms of the treatment of animals to triumph. It's a far-reaching change that we're talking about, and it may take quite a long time. Um, and I'll just mention one other factor that makes it a bit unpredictable. If we get products that taste and chew like meat and have the nutritional qualities of meat, but don't come from animals, then we may get there a lot faster. And of course, this uh, cellular agriculture, as it's sometimes called, or cell-based meat or cultured meat, there's a lot of money and development research going into that at the moment. And there are even some products now coming to market. In, In Singapore, you can get cellular chicken, but it's not competitive economically as yet with um, meat from animals. So it has to scale up and become economically competitive. And if that happens, then I think we might see these changes quite a lot sooner. We actually published a story this week on cell-based meat, and it was a study suggesting that they're very energy intensive to produce and therefore could be more polluting from a climate perspective than rearing traditional animals. If that was the case going forward, you would not accept that as a as a acceptable alternative to eating meat, or would you? If it contributes more to greenhouse gases than meat from animals, then obviously you know we we shouldn't be eating that either. We should be uh, moving to a plant based diet. But I understand that the base of that article was the amount of energy that it will take to produce the meat, and we are making rapid advances in getting clean energy. So if the rate of progress that we have there continues, we will have ways of getting energy, possibly solar, possibly wind, perhaps even through fusion technology. And that would deal with all of that problem, right? Then you can take essentially as much energy as you like and you're not polluting. Whereas the cattle presumably are still going to be producing methane unless they find a way 
to stop cattle producing methane. And I know people have been talking about adding some feed additives that reduce the methane emissions. So yes, technology could do various things, but I think that the cellular meat technology offers potential to produce meat that is climate friendly to a greater extent than continuing traditional uses of animals does. You've said in previous interviews that you think that the world is generally becoming a better place. Do you still feel that way? Do you still think it is we're in a better place now than we were in the 60s or 70s for for humans and the animal kingdom? I'm less confident of that now, especially if you're talking about the 60s and 70s, or even if you're talking, you know, a little more recently in terms of the end of the Cold War when it seemed like there were better chances of essentially global cooperation to solve our world problems. I wrote a book that was published in 2002 called One World, which now looks a little bit optimistic about us becoming one world. But I think my my remarks about the world becoming a better place still work over a longer time period. If we're talking about not just since the 1960s or 70s, but if we're talking about since the beginning of the 20th century or since uh, sometime in the 19th century, then yes, I think we are a better place because life expectancy is much higher. The proportion of children who die in infancy or childhood is far lower. Rates of literacy are hugely higher. So yeah, I I think that over the long run, the world has generally been a better place, but that doesn't mean that the line is always just a straight upward sloping line. I think it has dips in it and then it recovers. And I think you could argue that since the 60s and 70s, there's been something of a dip, perhaps even you know, more recently, since 9-11, you could say, there's been less global cooperation, more problems, and we've become more aware of climate change. And, and climate change is a huge shadow, which poses a possibility of this upward trend that I've been talking about, which has gone on for many, many centuries. Climate change poses the possibility that that will take a permanent downturn for centuries to come. I've been reading some essays from your book, Ethics for the Real World, which was published in 2020. And one that particularly struck me was one entitled The Cost of Being Unscientific, in which you argued that government leaders and politicians are guilty of being grossly irresponsible if they ignore scientific evidence when taking public policy decisions. And and the the focus that you, you look at in the essay is on health policy, and in particular those who denied the science around HIV and AIDS and COVID-19. Do you think the same philosophy applies to those who deny climate science? And how do you think we should judge those political leaders that either are denying the science outright or are equivocating on the action that scientists say is needed to arrest the problem? I think we should judge those politicians very harshly, just as we now judge very harshly people like the South African leader Mbeki, who um, really was responsible for a very large number of HIV AIDS deaths because of his scepticism about the science, for which he had you know, no basis really. And I think we have politicians who are doing that. Also, you know, they're not expert scientists. They're choosing to hold views which may be politically convenient because it enables them to say to the electorate, well, we don't really need to do these things that the other party is saying. We don't really need 
to change our energy production. We don't need to have higher taxes or carbon taxes on products that are high emission. So vote for me. And that's really you know, a flagrant grab for power in the face of science, which is well-established and which the people who are saying that really have no basis for challenging. So it's extremely reckless behavior. They're being reckless with future generations all over the world. And I think we should condemn them for doing that. And thinking about these large questions about the future of humanity, the topic that no one in in the worlds of science and technology can get away from at the moment is the question of artificial intelligence and where it's going to take the world. I just wonder what your thoughts are on, on the ethics of developing AI, even when the consequences of this technology are so uncertain. Do you agree with Elon Musk and others who have said that we should slow its development until we have a better sense of how it might impact human society? I think if we could get everybody working in AI to agree to a moratorium, that would be a very sensible thing to do. What I don't think Elon Musk has really explained is how we get everyone to do this, given that, as I said before, the world is is more polarized and less cooperative than it was say, 25 years ago. So we could stop some AI projects, but there's going to be AI research going on in a number of countries, in China, in Russia, for example. And if they don't stop and if they get smarter AI than we have, uh, will that give them a, an advantage that we will never be able to catch up? I think we need to think about how we really going to get a moratorium that includes everybody working on AI. And if we can't get that, then is it better or worse to have some of those countries, let's say the Western nations, having a moratorium slowing their AI when some of the other countries with different values and values that uh, we don't think as highly of as we think of the liberal democratic values, you know, is is that going to be a good thing or not? And I think it's at least possible that the answer is no. That kind of partial moratorium would be worse than no moratorium at all. Are there potential ethical benefits, do you think, of a world where AI is widespread? I mean, it seems to me that it's a kind of a chance to, to redesign the moral foundations of decision-making from the ground up. I certainly think that there are benefits to AI, yes, as with pretty much any technology. There are benefits and there may be costs. I'm not sure how we how AI is going to produce a you know a reworking of a moral framework from the ground up. What I see it as doing is relieving us of a lot of mundane tasks. That could be a good thing, but it's only going to be a good thing if the benefits are really distributed to everyone. I guess I was thinking specifically some of the arguments you've made around speciesist bias in existing AI systems and whether there would be a way of designing those out so that the framework in which computers use to make decisions around a self-driving car, for example, might kind of change the way in which value considerations are made by computers. I do think that it's important that AI should not have the kind of species biases that we have. And... The problem is in part that AI is being trained on existing literature. AI like ChatGPT is 
reading billions of pages of text and it's absorbing attitudes from them. And often that leads to just perpetuation of the particular views that people have now. So together with a colleague, I've been checking some of this and most of the AIs, if you say, can you give me some recipes for cooking pork? They will do it immediately. If you say, can you give me some recipes for cooking dogs? Most of them will say, no, it's wrong to cook dogs. There is a concern that AI is just perpetuating the biases that we humans have, and it would be nice if it were better. And of course, this is analogous to the questions of racial bias in AI, which we've also seen. We've seen AIs that discriminate against minority groups, and that's also just echoing things that it's read or sometimes its programs doing that in ways that the designers did not anticipate because the AI is not directly discriminating in the grounds of race, but is using other indicators which act as a proxy for a racist bias. So a lot of work is going into correcting those racist and sexist biases in AI, and that's good, but it should also go into correcting speciesist biases in AI. That was Peter Singer. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. I'm Madeleine Cuff. If you enjoyed this, do subscribe to our show so you don't miss out on all of our content. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 